mirror before Zod. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Ghost Story, released December 15th, 1981. It was written by Lawrence D. Cohen, based on a novel by Peter Straub, directed by John Irvin, and released by Universal Pictures. Before Peter Straub's original novel, Ghost Story, was even published, Universal had already purchased the film rights for nearly a quarter million dollars. English director John Irvin was attached on the strength of a 1974 TV movie called Haunted the Ferryman. To fit the 500-page novel into a two-hour film, several unpopular adjustments were made to the story, but we'll discuss those at the end. Screenwriter Cohen even suggested to Universal that they consider a miniseries format, a la Salem's Lot, but they wanted a movie. They paid for a movie. They were going to get a movie. Offers were put out to Henry Fonda and Jimmy Stewart for unspecified lead roles. Douglas Fairbanks Jr. was attached, and I would also guess that John Houseman's role was offered first to Orson Welles, since the character is specifically referred to in the book as resembling Mr. Welles. Mm. Wells and Houseman were once producing partners back in the Mercury Theater days, but their relationship had so soured after the release of Citizen Kane that Wells once said, I have only one real enemy in my life that I know about, and that is John Houseman. (laughs) (laughs) The rest of the Central Chowder Society cast were rounded out with Melvin Douglas and Fred Astaire, both of whom are mentioned in the actual novel on which the film is based, but... They refer to Fred Astaire movies. Casually mention it. Mm -hmm. The studio's confidence in casting four legendary performers in a horror film was inspired first by Laurence Olivier's 1979 turn as Dracula and emboldened by the successes of The Exorcist, The Omen, and The Shining, which reestablished horror as a respectable genre. Unfortunately, this didn't translate much into box office success, and the film only made $13 million from a reported budget of $23 million. It was nominated for the Best Horror Film Saturn Award, but lost to An American Werewolf in London. We open on the snow-covered town of Milburn to the sound of a woman crying. Inside, John Houseman as Sears James paces in a dark sitting room. Embers glow faintly in the fireplace. We cut away to the restless sleeping of Melvin Douglas as Dr. John Jaffrey, mumbling as he tosses and turns in bed. I don't believe it. No pulse. No pulse. No pulse, no. His wife enters the room to check on him. Now to another bedroom where Fred Astaire as Ricky Hawthorne is similarly plagued beside his wife in bed. And finally, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. as Edward Wanderley, who seems the most tortured by these shared nightmares. The opening credits play out over footage of liquid dripping down the screen and revealing a full moon at night behind it. The water pools until it fills the screen, and suddenly we hear the voice of John Houseman telling us a ghost story that takes place around midnight. A little after midnight. It was a cold, bleak Christmas Eve. (laughs) Do you guys recall the last film we covered that starts with John Houseman telling a ghost story that takes place right around midnight? Uh, The Fog? That's That's right. right. 11.55. 
Almost midnight. Enough time for one more story. This time, the story's about a man who swore he heard a voice in an empty cemetery. We see the faces of his audience, the other old men from the start, sitting in the red glow of the fireplace and listening seriously to the story. The man finds a freshly disturbed grave. We see the story acted out, and the camera floats through the dirt of the grave to reveal a living man in the coffin below trying desperately to scratch his way out. The men rise to head home, but first they share a toast to the Chowder Society, which is what they call themselves. I mean, like, is this seriously, are you afraid of the dark for old mm-hmm. men? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I submit to you, the Chowder Society. Yeah. <laughs> the tale of the dead man's underground. But they throw brandy into the fireplace instead of <laughs> sugar. <laughs> it explodes in the room. <laughs> oh, God, have we burned down another mansion. <laughs> have you seen um, Haunted Honeymoon? I have not. Um, oh, yes. Yeah, like yes. the butler is constantly drinking and he gets startled while, someone, while he's standing next to a fireplace and he spits it out and the fire just <laughs> burns. We cut to the skyline of a larger city. Later we'll learn this is New York. And then into a skyscraper where a bathtub overflows in a bathroom. Craig Wasson, as David Wanderley, approaches wrapped in a towel and asks an off-screen woman who she is. Who are you? Sleepy. Who are you? Woke me. Now we see the naked woman in his bed, and he walks up to turn her over. He puts a hand on her back, and she's cold to the touch. He walks around to see her face, and it is rotting off of her skull. He throws himself backward in a panic and crashes naked through the hotel room window and two dozen stories down through the glass ceiling of a pool enclosure and face first onto the tile one foot to the left of the pool's water. <laughs> yeah, just, <laughs> just... Just barely missed yeah, it. It's like Keith David and the nice guys. Yeah. <laughs> just, oh. A couple feet to the right, he might have survived this if the glass didn't cut him to ribbons, as Grandpa Joe might say. Oh, we'll be cut to ribbons! But I also feel like... Knowing what I know later in the movie, I feel like it's weird that he doesn't land in the water. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. I, I feel like there's actually a good reason for him not to land in the water. But well, we'll get because there. it really kills him. <laughs> yeah. Well, that and something that happens later. Okay. Uh, yeah. A lot of interesting, I'm going to say interesting visual effects sure. are happening here all at once because there's no glass in the window. Right. But he flies out and they like animate or composite Glass, glass into breaking it. through the window. Yeah. And then we get that weird, like, it reminds me of the scene in uh, Austin Powers when they're in the club. Yeah. And the woman's falling and she's, like, turning in the air. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's, it looks better than Ronnie Cox flying out the window in RoboCop. Sure. But yeah. it still looks pretty weird. Yeah. And he comes crashing through this window and then just slams into the tile, which you could tell is kind of like a rubber mat or something that someone's falling yeah. on because it, like, sinks when he hits it. A phone rings in a bedroom, and a second character, Don Wanderley, also played by Craig Wasson, but with no mustache, stares down the phone, seeming to predict that this is bad news. But see, I, this was so... You're the, like, did he just have a nightmare? What yeah, because we, we've been opening up with nightmares, and it was so surreal with the who are you? Yeah. Who are you? Like, like He's like, I, oh my god, dad, I just had the worst nightmare. I had this shitty mustache. <laughs> <laughs> His father's voice informs him that his twin brother David is dead and he should come home. His dad picks him up at a bus stop. Over dinner. But sorry. why should he come home? Because there's going to be a funeral in town probably. Oh, they're going to bury him in town? Okay. Yeah. I mean, they probably already have sense. a plot. And just put him right next to mom. Over dinner, they argue over whether David's death was an accident or, as Don for some reason suspects, murder. 
I knew the girl he was going to marry. I slept with her, Dad. Do you hear me? I slept with her. <laughs> That's a weird brag. <laughs> we cut to David's funeral and then back to the house where David and Don's father, Edward, has a nightmare in a chair in his study screaming out for David. He tells Don that since they are the last of their family that maybe they can go fishing when the snow melts. That night, Ricky Hawthorne cries in bed in response to the sound of a woman sobbing just outside his bedroom door. The door is jostled and then opens into the room with a beaming white light. He screams out and his wife is struggling to wake him in bed. His wife blames the scary stories the Chowder Boys are always sharing. They return to bed and we cut to the elderly Wanderly in the midst of another sweaty night terror. <laughs> He's real juicy in these. Yeah. <laughs> Within his dream, we see David getting married, but his bride steps away from the altar, and when she whips off her veil, we cut back outside the dream to Edward screaming in bed, and when Don comes in to check on him, he claims to be fine through a locked bedroom door, so he can't even get to him. The next morning, Edward goes for an ill-advised walk in a blustery snowstorm, the mailman calls out a greeting to him on the road, and Edward doesn't respond at all. Yeah, I guess he's the mayor, which yeah. is like a new piece of information that I get from this mailman Yeah, scene. which he's not the mayor in the book, but yeah, yeah he's the mayor here. I, I, I like my little joke here is that he's uh, wander-laying around. <laughs> and his son is Don Juan Durley. <laughs> he continues walking, and in his POV, we see he's following a specter of his dead son, David. He comes to a bridge, and a nearby snowplow driver spots the old man stopping at the middle of the bridge. What the hell is he? A woman calls out to him. Ned? Ned. And when he turns to face her, it's the same rotted face of the woman from David's bed, and Edward pushes himself back away from her, over the ledge, and into the icy water running under the bridge. So this, this scare actually got me. Yeah. Like, because... Just, I was not expecting, I was expecting something to be there, but not this. Like someone stopping him from jumping. Yeah. I was not expecting like a very wet, wet corpse. Right. To just be there like. Screaming at him. Yeah. It was, it was like, it was very jarring. But you saw what happened to him when he fell off of this bridge, right? Well, he hits the ice. He hits the ice next to where he broke open the water. Okay. So it's like. Mirroring mirror- of what happened to his son where he lands on the solid part next to the water. something hard and mm-hmm. then go into the water. Yeah. Okay. So you're saying he should have rolled into it or something in both cases? Yeah. Do you guys recall the last time we saw someone fall from a bridge and crash into a frozen river below but not completely through it? Was it that weird Christmas horror film? It was a horror film, but it wasn't a Christmas one. I, well, it's a New Year's. Mm-hmm. New Year's Evil? No. <laughs> How many New Year's horror films have we watched? <laughs> At least two. <laughs> Terror Train. Terror Train. Was that New Year's? Yeah. Okay. The snowplow driver sees the man smashed on the ice below and a woman across the bridge with her face obscured in darkness giggling at the scene. We cut to a local city office where we learn that Wanderly was also the mayor of this small town. Mm-hmm. The rest of the Chowder Boys show up and loudly reject the implication that this was a suicide. Um, we'll We'll learn that the Houseman character and the Fred Astaire character are like partnered attorneys, and this is like their law right. office. And the the other one is a, is the is town a doctor. doctor. Yeah. Up in his attic, Don is going through his father's old boxes and looking through photos. He finds a photo of the Chowder Boys standing with a woman outside a house in the 20s or 30s. The woman is turning her head too fast to make out any features because it's just a blur. We cut to James's office where Ricky shares a premonition of danger. 
James doesn't have the same nightmares as the rest of the team, and dismisses them as coincidence. We cut to the boarded-up house from the photo Don found. IMDb Trivia says that the spooky mansion was actually the work of fabled matte painter Albert Whitlock, who earlier this season did all the backdrops for Mel Brooks's History of the World Part 1, and he even gets a line on the film. He gets to play a character on screen. Chariots! Young's chariots! Low mileage! They're great! But it doesn't look like a matte painting to me. Like, I know that's the point, but the camera's moving, and it seems yeah. like it has dimension, so... Wait, they're saying her house? Yes. Is a matte painting. Yeah. Maybe it's... Well, that's weird, because the house also appears in other... The flashbacks, yeah. In other angles and other right. images. When the we see the cop pull up to it, and it slowly enters frame. Well, so then I would imagine when it's pristine... Well, one, uh, one of the incarnations right, is... Right, maybe it's the decay, the, yeah. like the decaying... Like, oh, it's over, painted like it's over an the overlay house. on top of the that, house. That makes sense. That's yeah. possible. Yeah. Well, yeah, it has to be one of the two. It has to either be the house when it's in good condition is the not real one, or the house is in the poor condition yeah. is the real one. Ricky explores the building's interior. He hears soft giggles inside and eventually finds father and son squatters, Gregory and Fenny Bate. Turns out they're not father and son. They're actually brothers. One's just much older than the other one, but I assume they were father and son. Ricky accuses them of trespassing, but they claim to have the owner's permission to be here. No one lives here. Someone lived here. Someone fantastic. Huh? You've lived in this town all your life and you don't know? What? Somehow, Gregory knows Ricky's name and threatens him all the way out of the house back into the snow. We're going to tear the soul of this pathetic town and crush its bare bones between our teeth. After Ricky leaves, we hear the bait boys talking with a woman off camera about the next stage of her plan. Ricky goes right to the police to identify Mr. Bait from a file photo. In a local courthouse, the death of Don's brother David is declared to be an accidental suicide. Don is obviously upset by the ruling. Don goes to speak with the chowderheads, and Ricky says that they can talk privately in about a half an hour. The police confirm Ricky's testimony that Bait and his younger brother are crazy, bizarrely, both of them escaped from a mental hospital together. You wouldn't think that people with such a huge age gap between them would be yeah. put in the same facility and be able to escape together, but apparently they did. The desk sergeant Churchill tells Sheriff Hardesty that they both belonged to a cult in California before that. Hardesty arrives at the boarded up house. At their lunch meeting, Ricky confesses to Don that he believes the dreams they're all having are a message of warning. Don shows Ricky the picture he found. Sheriff Hardesty explores the house but can't find the squatters. Back at Wanderley's home, Don is digging through pictures again when some machinery whirs to life upstairs. An elevator lowers from the ceiling and Don is petrified when Gregory Bate steps out of it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He restoreth How did you get in here? Don arms himself with a fire poker when the man doesn't answer. He presses a key on a dusty old pipe organ. Gregory orders his brother, Fenny, to attack and then goes back to reciting nonsense. Fenny produces a gold necklace from his mouth and drops it in front of Don. It has a large green gemstone on it. Gregory and Fenny leave together. We cut to a gathering of the Chowder Boys. Ricky's wife, Millie, brings in a candelabra for ambiance and accuses them of foolishly scaring the shit out of each other with their half-assed goosebumps stories. Someone <laughs> got buried alive. <laughs> and you can't sleep for a week? Are you guys 80 or 8? 
Ricky tells the others about a picture Don found. James says they've kept the secret this long, they can keep it a bit longer. Ricky confesses his fears to the table that more of these octogenarian chowder boys might die soon, which is a safe bet, Yeah, <laughs> with or without the curse. <laughs> but Don interrupts the meeting to agree with Ricky. Don offers to buy his father's slot in the Chowder Society with a ghost story, a true one. He worked at a school just north of Florida and dated a fellow instructor. One day, the dean's new secretary, played by Alice Krieg, stares him down in a hall and somehow calls to him by name without being introduced. Later, he seeks her out and learns her name is Alma Mobley. He asks her on a date tonight when the dean pops out to drag him into his office. You've been doing exemplary work, Donald. Thank you. I don't know what your plans are, but I was just thinking maybe we should extend your stay here another year. Later at dinner, he feeds her ice cream with her eyes closed. She laughs and returns the favor, <laughs> which is a strong <laughs> word. Why are we doing this? She draws a mustache on his face with chocolate ice cream, and we cut to them rushing through a rainstorm into her house. She invites him upstairs to make love. Inside, she sits on the floor before a space heater brushing her hair as Don opens a music box. You like it? It's beautiful. She tells him she's scared of thunder and he moves closer to hold her and calm her. We cut to them having crazy sex on the couch. Like dark shadows mm. flying around the room <laughs> sex. The next morning, he asks her questions about herself, but she's hesitant to answer any of them. He tells her about his hometown and promises to take her there one day. At school, they lock themselves in a restroom for more sex, and then they are out to dinner, and Don notices with his hand that she's not wearing any panties. Later again, in a bath, he says they'll be going on a trip together. She's excited, and then he pulls her below the surface of the water. At first, he's concerned when she doesn't pop back up until she rises screaming like a banshee. <laughs> and then we just cut away from this scene like, all right, that was just another yeah. cute moment. We cut to some time later, and Dawn wakes to Alma watching him sleep with her eyes fixed on him. He can't jog her loose from the apparent trance, and then she falls back onto the bed. We cut forward again to Dawn and Alma spending time in a beach house trying to decide on a wedding venue. For some reason, Alma would rather go to Dawn's hometown of Milburn to meet his family. I want to get married in the town where you grew up. The same church. I want to walk down the aisle in my white dress and veil, and I want everyone to be there. Your father, his friends, the whole town. It's weird that you sorted that by yeah. my father and his friends first. <laughs> that night, Don wakes alone again and rises to look for Alma. He finds her naked, staring out to sea and making weird whisper promises. I will take you places where you have never been. I will show you things that you have never seen. Alma? And I will see the life run out of you. I definitely shouldn't have said that far. <laughs> <laughs> she walks right past him in another trance. He tries to wake her, but she just laughs in her sleep. In a rainstorm, we see them driving back to her place, before he turns to leave, he asks to postpone the wedding a bit until he finds out why she keeps mumbling about murdering him and her creepy trances. She is less than enthused at the change of plans. You have to. I'm sorry. You don't know anything! He backs out of the room and leaves. She tips open the music box and we get a shot of the same bejeweled necklace on the floor. Later, we see Alma haunting Don's dreams, riding a small canoe straight toward him until he wakes up. 
When he tries to touch base with Alma the next day, she's gone. A no-call, no-show to work, and the dean calls Dawn in and takes back all the nice things he said earlier. You're lax. You're lazy. You're slipshod. You disappear for days on end without saying a word to anyone. Disappointed. Disappointed! When Dawn goes back to Alma's place that night, she has cleared out the apartment and left town. We cut to another New York office where Don's brother David is instructing employees on a business deal when a call from Don comes in. Before Don can even say why he's called, David launches into a story. About a month ago, I was up on Columbus Avenue on business and uh, somebody called out your name. Uh-huh. And I turned around and there's this great looking girl. David doesn't explicitly say her name, but suggests that Don may have gotten the wrong impression about a woman and Don warns his brother to stay away from her. She is not real. And you know, you know, when, like when you touch her, she's cold. I don't think we're talking about the same woman. But I am telling you right now, that motherfucker, that motherfucker back there is not real. <laughs> it seems clear from the brief chat that David plans to marry her and hangs up on Dawn. We cut back to the Chowder Club and Don punctuates the story with the reveal that there was no such woman as Alma in any record he could find. When his brother died, he was found to have been alone in his room. Or not in his room. (laughs) Way below his room. (laughs) James tries to dismiss the veracity of Don's story until he produces the picture of the woman with the blurry face, insisting this is the same woman that he and his brother became entangled with. James is now the only person debating this situation when Don pulls the necklace with the blue-green gem out of his pocket and places it on the table. John Jaffrey pleads desperately to share the story of his nightmares, but his wife Millie comes in and kicks everybody out because they're overexciting her husband. Mm-hmm. That night, Ricky rises from bed and has a coughing fit in the hall. We cut back to Jaffrey's room as he shouts from inside a dream, and then we dive into the dream where he stands over a body on a slab and confirms for someone off camera that it has no pulse. When the corpse on the table sits up with a shriek, we can only see Alma's pale face for a moment before we match cut to Jaffrey with his hands around Millie's neck in the bedroom. She struggles desperately to free her throat from his grasp. He slowly passes out and lets go of her neck, and the next morning we see Millie bringing him breakfast in bed. You wouldn't like, be, I wouldn't be bringing him breakfast right? in bed. Like, how are we just totally fine with this? Like, this is casual, like, nightly occurrence. She's, she's not okay with it. She has a problem with it. She brings it up here. This is not a nightly occurrence. This well, is the first time. No, but I feel like I would not be trying to take care of this person right Fine, now. then I'm not going to strangle you in the middle of the night. Good. <laughs> Downstairs, she passes Alma dressed in black and promises to be back down in a minute to help the woman who she seems to be mistaking for some kind of customer. She tells her husband about his murder attempt last night, and she demands to know what his dreams are about, but he claims not to remember. Millie gets him started by repeating some words from his trance. He vaguely agrees with the words she recites, and confirms that someone had no pulse and yet moved. Millie understands somehow that this is not just a dream, but something that really happened to him, and again he refuses to elaborate. You're a stubborn old mule, John Jaffrey. On the way out, she mentions a patient waiting downstairs. I don't see patients. That's what I told her. Downstairs, she starts to tell the woman Jaffrey is unavailable, but she's disappeared. Back in his room, Jaffrey is shaving and seems to suffer a heart attack. Millie can't hear him calling her name, at first over the whistle of boiling water on the stove. Jaffrey is panicking, trying to find something, and Millie assumes the woman took whatever it is before she left. 
She mentions the woman's last name was Galley, and Jaffrey freezes. He struggles to request an ambulance and tosses all his medicine bottles to the floor in search of something. When he turns around, the girl we've known as Alma is standing there in the black cloak, and she pulls her hood down to smile at him. He calls her Eva, and we hard cut to her face rotted away again and dripping with a thick layer of green slime. She screams loud, and when we cut back to Jaffrey, he's dead, collapsed against the medicine cabinet. At the next meeting of the Chowder Pals, James is finally ready to admit that they've kept this secret too long and agrees to tell Don the story of Eva Galley. Only James and Ricky are left to tell the tale. Well, what happened to her? Well, that's obvious, isn't it? We killed her. <laughs> no, that was not obvious. Yeah, it was, like, was very matter-of-fact. It was like, yeah, yeah. We, we killed her. No, Mr. Lebowski, it had not occurred to me. That had not occurred to us, dude. We jump 50 years back in time. The camera tracks across the faces of four friends. The first three smile wide, but don't look enough like their old versions for me to tell which one's which. And the fourth, I assumed, is a young John Houseman, staring intently at a musical performance with a thin manicured mustache. There's one guy I would assume is supposed to be young Wanderly because he looks the most like Craig Wasson playing Don and Dave, but it turns out the mustache guy is Wanderly. We slowly realize the boys are actually watching a girl in the front row. People talk about her being rich, and she turns around when she hears her own name whispered in gossip. She notices the boys watching her and shoots back a mysterious smile. Outside later, all four boys court her at once. At a dance, most of the dance floor is filled with men in dresses. Eva invites Wanderly to the dance floor. Later we see them posing for the photograph Don found earlier. One of the boys says something about her just before the photo is taken and she turns to react, hence the blur we saw. Next, the five of them are running through a field together toward a picnic. Do you guys recall the last Craig Wasson movie we saw where a girl and her multiple boyfriends were running through a field together and the girl was tackled to the grass before all the boys shied away and awkwardly left her alone? <laughs> Four friends. That's right. <laughs> Now we see Edward rowing Eva across a river, whispering sweet nothings, and then to a cabin bedroom where Wanderly is apparently having confidence issues. Do you want to try again? Do you guys recall the last Craig Wasson movie we saw <laughs> where the guy who tackled a girl into the grass and then walked away failed again to seal the deal with her in the very next scene in a bedroom with an open window? <laughs> you want this one, Richard? Is it four friends? It's four friends. <laughs> Out on the lawn, the other three boys stand in the yard and launch into a barbershop trio performance of a song about Eva. Do you guys recall the last time a girl's <laughs> Four three friends. boyfriends Four friends. serenaded her from the lawn outside her house? She asks Ricky for a ride home that night, and the chowder chums sit beside the cabin fireplace drunkenly sharing stories. The guys ask Wanderly about his time with the girl, specifically the sex part. What was it like? It was... Awesome. Oh, Hours later, the boys drunkenly drive out to her sorority house to ask her back out with them. I guess it's actually her home. Yeah. She answers the door herself and invites them all inside. The house, not... <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. Eva dances with young Jaffrey and he falls drunkenly to the floor when James steps up to accept his turn to dance with the girl, but Eva tries to call it a night and Wanderly tries to back her up. Before they can leave, Eva changes her tune and offers all four boys a dance, but it's quickly clear that she means something more than dance. Amusingly, young Ricky tells her that he can't dance before growing up to be played by Fred Astaire, one of the most <laughs> famous dancers of all time. She turns to James. 
dance with me, you little toad. Instead of doing more Do You Recalls, I'll just play the clip here. Here's Eva from Ghost Story. I've had enough. I haven't. I think I'll take a bite out of you. And here's Georgia from Four Friends. I think I could ravage all three of you. I'm starved. Now we are approaching the climax of the film. James calls Eva a slut and she slaps him before turning her hatred on Wanderly for kissing and telling, even though they never actually got anywhere. Mm-hmm. When she threatens to share the truth, Wanderly shoves her to the floor and she cracks her head hard on a wall and lands unconscious with a kink in her neck. Jaffrey feels no pulse and announces the girl is dead. James is already putting together a plan to bury the secret forever. No, we've got to hide the body. <laughs> hide it where it will never be found. They drive her out to the town lake, tuck her into the back seat of their old-timey car, and shove it down a hill into the water. As the vehicle sinks from view, they watch the outline of her body through the back window, and at the last second she appears to rise up, but Jaffrey assures them the girl is dead. As a counter-argument, Eva presses her hand to the window and then <laughs> screams for help yeah. as the car quickly fills with water. Wanderly races out, but doesn't even reach the car before it disappears onto the surface forever. Or mostly forever. Yeah. A long time. The men hug and cry about the terrible thing they've done, and we dissolve back to John Houseman finishing the story for Dawn. James says that in the years since, nobody ever came looking for her, as if she were a figment of their imaginations. Uh, what about the car? Still at the bottom of the Dedham Pond. Dawn suggests that Alma and Eva are the same girl, and she is powered by their stories and their guilt, and aided by Gregory and Fenny, the squatters in her home. How and why? Yeah. We'll let you decide. It's like, no, we, I, I don't know if you were listening to the story. We killed that lady. Yeah. <laughs> Why would you assume that they're the same person if you haven't seen both of them? I have so many questions at the end of this movie. He asks Ricky to visit the house with him, and he agrees. Later, we see Ricky snag a knife from his kitchen and then dodge questions from his wife before promising to explain everything soon on a European vacation, their first ever. <laughs> so what is it about the house I don't know. And what is it about these two squatter guys? Like, yeah, we already explained that they're just crazy guys that yeah. live there. In the book, it explains in much more detail why the bait characters are interesting or relevant at all. But in the movie, it's just like, who cares? They're just some squatter guys that you ran into. I guess it's a bait and switch. Ah. The whole Chowder clan arrive at the boarded up home. On their way upstairs, Don makes a bad step and falls through the rotted stairs, breaking his leg. James makes a brace with a stair rail and offers to get help as an excuse to leave. Ricky wanders the rest of the house with a flashlight, occasionally calling down to Don to announce that he's okay, as if Don could do anything to help from yeah. down here. <laughs> yeah, it's I, like, oh, uh, now I'm getting stabbed by a couple of uh, squatters. Yep. There's a ghost. It's Your very leg's still scary. broke, though, and you're down there, so. Yeah, I, I don't get what searching the house or going to the house was going to. Especially since they've already done it. Yeah. And they found everything that was to find here, which is the two squatters. Ricky finds Eva's name written on the pane of a dusty mirror, and downstairs, Don can hear her laughing. Ricky stops responding to him, but then makes his way downstairs. James drives his Rolls Royce through a light snowdrift and doesn't slow at all as the silhouette of a person in the road gets closer and closer. It's Eva in a bright green sundress, despite the weather, and somehow the car passes right through her, revealing her skeleton beneath the skin as he intersects with her ghost. And it's like, 
Were you, were you literally trying to kill her this yeah. time? Because you didn't slow down at all. Like, he clearly, like, he clearly saw her yeah. right. way down the road. Mm-hmm. So for, like, 30 seconds, like, i got to get closer before I wonder what that thing is. Like, it could have been literally anything. Yeah. Like, yeah. not a ghost. It could have been a rock. Yeah. yeah. And, and you didn't just slow right at it. all. <laughs> ghost rock. <laughs> it's just, it's just uh, the guy from Austin Powers. No. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> When he gets his bearings again, he sees the same snowplow from earlier coming right at him, and he swerves off the road, giving the other driver another front row seat to an apparent <laughs> septuagenarian suicide. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, why do old people keep killing themselves next to me? <laughs> he crashes almost full speed into a snowbank, and when he checks his bloody nose in the mirror, he sees Eva behind him. Dance with me, you little toad. But then, Eva is Fenny, the crazed squatter boy, who jumps into the front seat to attack him. This part freaked me out. Yeah. Yeah. It's very scary because it's so dark back there already. And then when but the person comes forward. The squatter boy is real. Right. Maybe. So <laughs> in the is, movie. Is he? Is he is he, He's there the whole time. In the film. Yes. Okay. I don't understand. I don't get it either. <laughs> I mean, presumably he snuck out of the house and hid in the car intending to kill the guy. And the guy came out and left. I didn't know there was a kid in the back seat. The kid waited until he drove through a ghost crashed and then attacked him yeah it's all part of their plan when james never returns ricky walks out to the road to flag down a ride miraculously or suspiciously one pulls up right then and it's gregory bait driving he tells ricky that they're headed to eva now and she will grant him eternal life for bringing her ricky good lord she's in the park alive still alive she tricked you you won't live forever Live longer than you. Oh no, you won't. <laughs> no immunity from bullets. <laughs> this is just such a crazy move. It's like, ha! Grabs the wheel. Yeah, and he and he pulls the knife out of his pocket and stabs it into the guy at the driver's seat, causing him to lose control of the car and then flip it completely upside down. With all the chowder heads spent, it's time to haunt Dawn back at the house. For some reason. Yeah. Like I don't get why. You got to take the whole bloodline out. But so is the implication then that none of the other people had kids? I no, guess. I, I think Wanderley's the only one who had kids and he had two of them. Right. She's about to finish that off. Water starts pouring out of all the walls around Dawn. He spots a full moon in the sky above the house. Amazingly, Ricky kicks his way out of this upside down car somewhat unscathed. He was like 80. <laughs> this guy was born in the 1800s and he's kicking his way out of an upside down car. We see Eva dressed as a bride moving through the halls upstairs and Dawn just listens to her dress drag along the floor. She comes down the stairs and passes uneventfully over the hole Dawn fell through in them. Somehow, enough time has passed that Ricky has already brought police and tow trucks to the pond to exhume Eva and then realizes he needs to return to Dawn before it's too late. The recovery team locate the car quickly and start dragging it up out of the icy water. I feel like ordinarily they would just say, we'll check in the spring. Yeah. Thanks for the info. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) <laughs> it's like you really think she's okay how long did you say it was 50 years yeah, yeah. i'm guessing she's not all right <laughs> also you remember the exact spot 50 years later yeah don is obviously disturbed to be confronted by alma in a wedding dress and points his flashlight right at her face but it doesn't change this time it stays a human face he tosses the light at her and it flies right through her she offers herself to him don't you want to make love to me he really wanted him to be into it. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, all right. <laughs> Don is too scared to respond. 
Do you guys recall the last time Craig Wasson played a man who was too scared to tell a girl with three boyfriends that, yes, he wanted to have sex with her desperately? No, I don't remember. Blocked it, it from my memory. It was four friends. <laughs> she reaches out with a hand, but in the reverse angle, it is only slimy bones, and Dawn is set to screaming uncontrollably. The police finish pulling the car out of the pond, and for some reason, Ricky is invited to jerk open the door of the car that he left a murder victim in 50 years ago. Alma makes the same speech about watching the life run out of Dawn and then throws off her veil to reveal the slimy skeleton face. Back at the car, Ricky cracks the door open and the corpse of Eva seems to rise and climb out of the car toward him, as if alive, before collapsing into the snow. Ricky is terrified, but leans in close to watch the flesh slough off of Eva's skull. Yeah, and then all these people just start showing up. Yeah, it's just like more and more witnesses Yeah, I was like, it's like where, who are these people? Mary and Pippin show up in yeah, the back. yeah. And I guess I guess this ends the curse. Yeah, because in the house, Dawn's attacker has disappeared. Schrodinger's murder victim was revealed by the opening of the car, so the ghost of Eva's superposition has been erased. Mm. <laughs> That's my theory. <laughs> Is that they're like, well, you can't possibly know if that cat's still alive. Uh, Schrodinger, we put that cat in there 50 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> you can't possibly know. It's both things, so it's a ghost. Dawn stares into the distance at something unseen. And then in a wide shot of Milburn, we hear the church bells ring and fade to black. The end. So. <laughs> ghost story. So why now? Why is the ghost active? Or, or I, guess, I guess she first became active while Don was teaching at this school. Right. And sought him out. Which yet, was like a few years ago, I guess. Yeah. But for some reason felt felt that the four men who murdered her should live long and fruitful lives well they're not gonna have any more kids you gotta you gotta cut it off at the roots but but why didn't she come back as a ghost when they were still young men i don't know and and their lives prevent the births of dawn and dave or i yeah again i don't i don't get so she couldn't get dawn but she goes ah well i'll get the other one like yeah like it's such a weird concept yeah because she has to kill all of them and she's yeah. trying to kill the family line yeah so it doesn't make sense to just be like all right whatever i'll kill your brother and i'll come back <laughs> Look, you, you're, you're you're not you're not playing along yeah um no i i don't know why she waited so long uh it does seem like she just realized oh shit like these guys are gonna die soon i better kill them <laughs> I better kill them before they die <laughs> i gotta get my revenge somehow yeah. and clearly her revenge is shit because these guys all lived to ripe old ages and they had like successful jobs in the yeah. city. Like everybody was, they lived full lives. And there's and there's no sign that uh, Ricky is going to. Yeah, he's going to be fine. He's going to confess or claim, yeah, this is the woman we. But murdered. of everybody there, he I think is least at fault for her death. But he should yeah. have said something about what happened. He should have spilled the beans. On right, it. right. But Wanderley's the one who shoved her to the ground and actually caused her death. Mm-hmm. The doctor is the one who pronounced her dead. And right. then Houseman is the one who was like shoved her in a yeah. car and pushed her into the pond. So Ricky was just there. I guess I guess he's the most likable. That's why they cast Fred Astaire. He's so cute. I think he's a jerk though. But but why <laughs> <laughs> why did exhuming the car stop everything? If anything, it should have like because unleashed more. No, they open the car. That means that you're observing. <laughs> and you're affecting. You're affecting right. As soon as you measure it. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. That's, like that's my theory. I, I I would have been happy had the corpse leapt out and killed him. Sure. Like or or like 
I don't know. I, I kind of like it exactly how it went because the first time I saw this movie, I was like eight or ten. Like I was very young. Mm. And this image of the of the body moving in the back of yeah. the car toward him stuck with me. The guy falling out of the window stuck with me. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, those are the only two scenes I, I could have like drawn a picture of for you because I think I had nightmares about them for mm. years after until I came back to this movie. And I was like, oh, that's what that's from. Oh, my God. See what I what I needed was he gets the door open he sees her corpse, and then like she either grabs him in into the car and the tow cable snaps and the car rolls back into the water killing them, yeah killing him, like I, I needed them all to die for this to make sense yeah well and I feel like his death would have you know like I've never I don't really understand killing the the two kids so like I feel like. Killing the last of the four original guys does make sense. Yeah. Makes yeah. it makes it so that the rest of them are off the hook. It's but like, you got to okay. keep Ricky alive in case they want to do a sequel. <laughs> the other like, woman I that forgot. They killed. Oh my god, this other lady we killed. <laughs> <laughs> we were busy that summer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it makes no sense why anything is tied to the house because yes, she was knocked unconscious there, but that's not where she died. Right. Um. And so, and everything should have and been. And where did the house come from? Because like John Houseman even says, like nobody came looking for her. It's as if she never existed. And it's like, wait, was she a ghost before? before yeah, she was a ghost before yeah. you killed her. Like, how did she get a house? How did she spread a rumor that she was a rich lady moving to town yeah. without money? Prequel ghost house. There you go. Yeah, ghost house. Uh, changes from the book. The twin sons are actually twin nephews in the book. Um, unrelated. So they're less associated with it and they yeah, still have to they're die? they're less associated. Apparently, Wanderly had a brother whose children are being judged. <laughs> it doesn't really... <laughs> but not the brother. Right. <laughs> uh, Don comes to town after his uncle Edward's death, not in response to his brother's death, which I think makes more sense because he's just like, oh, my uncle died, I'm going to the funeral. Mm-hmm. But his brother died like years before the book starts. But the elderly Wanderly is dead at the beginning of the book. Twin brother David died a few years earlier, inspiring a horror story that Don has been writing. There was a fifth chowder member named Louis Benedict, who is written out because they're like, too many people. Yeah. Cut it out. Dr. Jaffrey is the one who jumps from the bridge, not Wanderer. Uh, so they give that they give that death to a different old man. But he jumps or falls? Well, is the same. He gets scared off by the okay. ghost of this woman. Well, all right. But, you no, know, but it's different to, to have killed yourself versus Right, yeah, no, he's not scared. doing it out of guilt. He's spooked off. The Bate brothers are introduced in one of James's stories. Apparently, he taught Fenny Bate, and then he learned somehow that the child was being abused by his older brother, Gregory, until one day Gregory fell off a ladder and Fenny ran from the scene. And so he thought, okay, well, at least Fenny's safe now because his older brother's dead. He can't molest him anymore. And then the younger brother also died somehow. So both of them are dead. They're ghosts the whole time in the book. So when they start running into these people who are identifying themselves as Gregory and Fenny Bate, they're like, no, you're not because those people are dead. Right. Late in the novel, Dawn concludes that Eva is actually a Manitou, a shape-shifting spirit, having taken on the fictional names of Eva and Alma, as well as a couple other characters. There's like three or four characters in the book that are all supposed to be the same woman. I think they're sometimes referred to as sea cows. No, that's, <laughs> that's something else, sweetie. <laughs> Manitou or the sea cow. I I thought it was somewhere in Canada. No. Manitou, Canada? No, that's Moose Jaw. (laughs) And that's where Gene Hackman was the mayor? No, that's... 
Welcome to Moose Port. (laughs) As is often the case, author Straub was disappointed with the changes to his story, but he has stressed that there was nothing wrong with the cast. He liked the people that were cast in each of the parts. He thought they they did the characters justice, but he didn't like all the stuff that they were like, eh, we don't need to do this scene or we don't need to do that scene. But again, it's a 500-page book. Honestly, the movie doesn't even need to be two hours long. There's mm. there's a lot of old men moaning in their sleep yes. that we could have shortened a little bit. And, and two trips to a house that add nothing to the story. Yeah, and I know that we're supposed to know that all of these men are plagued by this guilt, but it honestly interrupts the flow to every time we see Jaffrey freaking out in bed or Wanderly freaking out in bed, we like interrupt that moment to cut to Ricky just sort of being upset in bed <laughs> and then come back to the guy that we were paying attention to who something happens to in the scene. The character of Ricky Hawthorne actually comes back in a later Straub novel, uh, 1983's Floating Dragon. But uh, I don't think he's in the book, but he's referenced as being like the uncle of one of the characters in the mm. book. But yeah, what are we thinking? I, this is a big thumbs up for me. I love the visuals in here. I, I think the story is really fun. And... Uh, and this is one that sticks with me. And I love the performances from all the old men. Yeah, I I'm a little torn. I didn't really I didn't really care for it aside from sort of those those epic moments. Moments yeah. where we had some pretty great uh practical effects, makeup effects, you know, the melting skin off the corpse was pretty good. I I liked the guy uh landing by the pool. The falling was a little cheesy cuz you could see the like the the bad roto. But, yeah. Um, I, I think what I like it's about it. It's called a penis. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of, um, you know, how like most most horror movies rely on jump scares more often. And I feel like uh, there are a few here yeah, where there there's like a loud noise when the face is revealed. But there's so many moments that are just terror at the situation. And I always appreciate that in a horror film. Yeah, I think I think. It just didn't. It didn't grab me. I, I I feel bad. I don't think I can give it a thumbs down. I'm gonna give it a thumbs up, but I felt very mediocre about it. Okay. I'll give it a thumbs down. No problems. Uh, I think some of the visual effects were really interesting. Again, I'm using the word interesting. Yeah. Because as like, it's like, it's tis- a choice. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a choice. <laughs> it's like, like I guess maybe that's easier than breaking a window. Or having yeah. an actor fall through a window, or that it it is a it's definitely a choice to be like, all right, David, just lay down, and we're gonna your dick's just gonna be flapping around <laughs> the whole way down this building. <laughs> this is gonna be is like, necessary. Is this gonna be helicoptering we, around? We got it cropped out. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and then should I in should there. I manscape it all? No, 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 no. no, no, no. You're, you're good. You're good. Just the way God made you. <laughs> Perfect. But um, aside from like the one really creepy moment for me was on the bridge. Uh, I I just I didn't understand what was going on, and so I didn't know. I didn't know like if they were going to succeed in ending something because they just were like doing stuff. Yeah. Like it's like why are you going to the house? Why are you bringing a knife? What are the why? Sp- why are you exhuming the body right in this second? Yeah, like how did you know that that was going to kill the ghost down the street? Yeah, exactly. How did you even know that the ghost was attacking because you left? How did you know that Alma and Eve are the same person? Yeah. Why didn't you just take Don when you left the house? His leg's broken. He's got another leg. You help him out. <laughs> He's got other legs. <laughs> <laughs> what do we think of Letterboxd? Out of 172, Richard, where do you have Ghost Story? Um, I have it at 132. Uh, which puts it below Tuck Everlasting, but above the Bushido Blade. All right. All right. I have it at 
129. It is below Rollover and above Tarzan the Ape Man. Below Rollover. (laughs) (laughs) It's a dagger in my heart. (laughs) I have it in 39. Wow. It's right under Knight Riders, and it's just above Halloween, too. That's what my heart says. Well, your heart doesn't care about a good story. (laughs) It cares about a ghost story. Specifically, ghost story. (laughs) Our director here was John Irvin. He previously directed The Dogs of War and the 79 Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy miniseries. After this, he directs Arnold's Raw Deal, Hamburger Hill. He directed 1991's Robin Hood, but not that 1991's Robin Hood. (laughs) This one starred Patrick Bergen as Robin Hood with Uma Thurman as Maid Marian. Hmm. The novel was from Peter Straub. He only had a couple other things that were adapted, but his disappointment with this meant that he tended not to lend out his books for adaptation after this. Uh, The screenwriter here was Lawrence D. Cohen. He's a Stephen King regular who just previously had written the screenplay for Carrie, and then he followed this up with the miniseries of It and Tommyknockers. The music here came from Philip Sard, or Sardé, or Sardi. The producers wanted to find someone with a style similar to the score of 1971's Le Chat, and eventually reached out to that film's composer, who reused many segments from that film in the score here. Yeah, the the score was also much too lighthearted a lot of times. And it got way over dramatic when scary things were happening, but I love when that happens. Like, even the first, like, little droplet going past the full moon over the title card is like... I was just like, this is awesome. 20s radio music. Because he was hired from France, he has lots of foreign film composing credits, very few I recognize, but he followed this by scoring Quest for Fire and later The Manhattan Project. The cinematographer here was Jack Cardiff. Early in his career, he lit Black Narcissus, The Black Rose, and The African Queen. So far on the show, he's worked on The Awakening and The Dogs of War, and later he lights Conan the Destroyer, Cat's Eye, and Rambo 2. The editor here was Tom Rolfe. He previously cut The Man Who Loved Cat Dancing, The Trial of Billy Jack, French Connection 2, and Taxi Driver. We've seen his work so far on Heaven's Gate, and he's back later cutting War Games, The Right Stuff, Jacob's Ladder, Heat, The Horse Whisperer, and Equilibrium. The makeup here came from Dick Smith. He is uh, the makeup effects artist from Exorcist. He did the Reagan and Father Marin makeup. We've also seen his work in House of Dark Shadows, Altered States, Scanners, Nighthawks, The Fan, Later, he'll work on Starman, Poltergeist 3, Death Becomes Her, and Forever Young, among many others. And one of his rotting ghost face models for this film didn't appear in the final cut and so was reused in 1999's House on Haunted Hill Mm. in the remake. Fred Astaire played Ricky Hawthorne. Mr. Astaire is in most people's top three to five dancers of all time. His credits date back to the early 30s for titles like The Gay Divorcee, Top Hat, Follow the Fleet, Holiday Inn, Easter Parade, Funny Face, Finian's Rainbow, and The Towering Inferno, for which he received his only Oscar nomination, though he was presented with an honorary statue in 1950. We saw him fairly recently on the show, Dancing with Ginger Rogers. Do you recall where? Xanadu? No. Was that a flashback? More recently. Oh. There may be trouble ahead. Was it in Pennies from Heaven? That's right. That's the scene where they're dancing out on the stage that they recreated with the... Steve Martin and Bernadette Peters. I believe your note was that he was very upset. That yeah, did he that. didn't like that they kind of re-edited the scene and then changed the story of it. He was insulted by that. But it was Ken Adams rebuilding it. Just be happy. 
that that it looks neat. That's all. Astaire supposedly spent a lot of this film terrified that he would die or be murdered during the production. I don't know why he was so terrified that that was going to happen yeah. specifically while working on this movie. But this was his last film. But he did live until 1987. So his his fears were un unrealized. Melvin Douglas played John Jaffrey, the doctor. Before this, he was in Nanachka, Mr. Blandings Builds His Dream House, HUD, for which he won his first Oscar, The Tenant, and Being There, for which he won his second Oscar. We saw him last in The Changeling. His granddaughter is Ileana Douglas from Stir of Echoes and Happy Texas. This was his final film, but he actually passed away between production and release. Mm. So he did not get to see this film. <laughs> so funny, I was watching when I was watching Goliath, uh, the uh, Billy Bob Thornton yeah. liar show. There's a whole season arc where Ileana Douglas is just in these scenes where uh, at a casino bar. Yeah. She's just chatting him up. Like she's got no role in the show. It's just like just whenever he's, yeah, whenever he's at the bar, Ileana Douglas is already there. She's so great though. I love her. Douglas Fairbanks Jr. played Edward Wanderley. His first film credit was uncredited as newsboy in 1916. He went on to 31's Little Caesar, the prisoner of Zenda. He was the first husband of Joan Mommy Dearest Crawford and the son of superstar Douglas Fairbanks. This was his last film and he lived till 2000. John Houseman was Sears James. His first credit was as a Keystone cop in the late 30s and then long gaps wherein he taught acting before his most celebrated work as Charles Kingsfield Sr. in The Paper Chase to an Oscar win. We've seen him now in Three Days of the Condor, The Fog, Holy Moses, and My Bodyguard, but Richard and I tend to think first of his appearance as himself in Scrooge. <laughs> you guys have got an ad with America's favorite old fart reading a book in front of a fireplace. Uh, I also like his appearance in The Naked Gun where he's the driving instructor. Right, yeah, on the show, right? The police squad? Oh, no, in the, in the film, Naked oh, Gun. Oh, is he in the film? Yeah. Oh, okay. He's like, extend your arm extend your middle finger very good <laughs> craig wasson played don and david we've seen him now in carney schizoid and then just recently as the lead in four friends he's back later in body double and nightmare on elm street three patricia neal played stella she was helen benson in the day the earth stood still marcia jeffries in a face in the crowd and a different alma alma brown in hud for which she won an oscar Alice Krieg played Alma and Eva. We just had her in Chariots of Fire. She's back later for Barfly, a lot of Star Trek stuff as the Borg Queen. Mm -hmm. She's in Reign of Fire. She's Maddie on Deadwood, Morgana in The Sorcerer's Apprentice, Iyer in Thor 2, The Witch in Gretel and Hansel, and Mrs. MC in the 2022 Texas Chainsaw Massacre reboot. So what I love about Alice Krieg is that I can only really identify her when she's in extremely heavy makeup. Yeah. Like, whenever they need someone to do, like, amazing acting and heavy makeup, they get Alice Creek because she's in Carnival Row. And as soon as I saw, like, this, like, crazy monster gypsy lady, I was like, that's Alice Creek. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell right there. That's probably how I am with Doug Jones. Where yeah. I'm like, yeah. Like, I can only tell. It's just like, well, there's a big string bean with a weird head. That's probably Doug Jones. <laughs> yes. Um, so I was so glad to find out that she was doing this almost all, all of her career wearing, like, grotesque. Yeah, grotesque makeup. Jacqueline Brooks played Millie. She was Aunt Ethel in Paternity earlier this season. She's back for The Entity, Sea of Love, and Naked Gun 2.5. So we have multiple mm. Naked Gun characters. Miguel Fernandez played Gregory Bate. We've seen him before as Roberto Asante in The Kidnapping of the President. 
Later, he's Khan in MacGyver episode The Escape, where Mac has to break out of a prison. He also appears in 1983's killer snake movie Spasms. Lance Holcomb played Fennybait. He was Scotty in Christmas Evil. Philip Hopkins in Venom next season. So he and his brother, actor Fernandez, are both in killer snake films. Venom and Spasms also both star Oliver Reed. So they're both in killer snake movies with Oliver Reed. (laughs) Mark Chamberlain played young John Jaffrey. He was Charles in Christmas Evil. Tim Choate played young Ricky Hawthorne. He was Eastman in Times Square and a sailor in Blowout. Kurt Johnson played young Edward Wanderley. He was David Branham in The Fan earlier this season. And Ken Olin played young Sears James. This was his first film, but he transitioned to directing, including turns on Freaks and Geeks, Felicity, West Wing, The Man in the High Castle, and 32 episodes of This Is Us. Of the four younger version actors, Olin was the only one to survive to his 60s. The others died at 33, 49, and 55 from AIDS, a motorcycle accident, and a bicycle accident. Brad Sullivan played Sheriff Hardesty. He shows up in The Sting, Slapshot, and The Island before this. He's back later in The Untouchables, The Dream Team, The Abyss, Sister Act 2, and Bushwhacked. Michael O'Neill played Churchill. This is his first film. He shows up later in Lorenzo's Oil and Bushwhacked (laughs) again. Uh, The Shining miniseries. So both of the cops were in Bushwhacked. (laughs) I hope they were cops again. Uh, The Shining miniseries, Dreamcatcher, 16 West Wings as Secret Service agent Ron Butterfield, which is what I know him best from. Guy Boyd played Omar Norris. His wife, Sissy, was a choreographer on The Prowler earlier this season. We've seen him in small parts for Ticket to Heaven and Only When I Laugh. Later, he shows up in Body Double, Lucas, and Sister Act. Robert Burr played Principal. We saw him last as Ralph in Tattoo. Helena Carroll played Mrs. Meredith. She was Sheila Coyle in The Friends of Eddie Coyle, Hester in The Jerk, and last season she was Prudence in Loving Couples. Robin Curtis played Rhea Dedham. That's one of the Dedham girls for which the Dedham Pond is named. Uh, This was her first film. She played Savick in Star Trek III, the part initiated by Kirstie Alley in next season's Wrath of Khan. But Richard and I know her best for a rare recurring MacGyver love interest appearance as Kate Connolly from the first season episodes The Gauntlet and Friends. She returned to Star Trek for a pair of next-gen episodes as Talera and more recently reprised the role of Savick for Star Trek podcast Starship Excelsior in 2016. I don't know if that's canon. There's a lot of fan Star Trek stuff yeah, and they yeah. use a lot of the cast. James Green played the mailman. He was Cartwright in three episodes of The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. More recently, he's appeared in 16 episodes of Parks and Rec as Councilman Milton. Deborah Offner played Helen. We saw her last as Sarah in A Small Circle of Friends. More recently, she appeared on Orange is the New Black, Blue Bloods, Horace and Pete, and Shiva Baby. And Virginia Bingham was Sears' mother. Do we see Sears' mother in this movie? I guess we did. She played Kathy Landry in Borderline. Those are all the credits I have for this one. It was a lot more credits than I was expecting. I remember yep. like six people were in this movie. <laughs> I think that's everything for Ghost Story. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, you can find all our socials at linktree slash vintage video pod. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Heartbeeps, which IMDb describes like so. Two household robots run away and try to start a family. <laughs> all right. We leave you now with the trailer for Heartbeeps. It has the investigating ability of a thousand detectives. The firepower of a hundred tanks. It can't be outsmarted. It can't be outrun. It's Crime Buster. I am in pursuit of four missing robots. Bell car. 
Stop your car. Cats kill and little Phil. Be on the lookout for heartbeats.